Well, it was another weird year, but 2021 still managed to give us some great new films. Despite many theaters being shuttered for more than half a year, unconventional release methods still allowed for some bold-faced films to generate buzz, and smaller indie films were allowed more room to breathe since blockbusters had to be pushed back. And by the end of the year, we even had some bonafide box office smashes in the books. So with all that being said, the great pop culture debate wants to look back and share our thoughts on what we think are the best films of 2021. Whoever controls the spice controls the universe, and that's why I've been keeping Jerry Hallowell locked in my basement. I'm your host, Eric Resniak. Please help me welcome our amazing panel. While the film industry is revisiting and remaking, he's happy to be his own unique intellectual property. Please welcome Jim Zadzik. Hey, I just don't understand how their fast and furious need to get back franchise ghosts in the afterlife of Hollywood. Clearly, Jim's IP is built around dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> She wants Revolution Girl style now. It's Carissa Kloss. That's right. I hold my head up so high, and I'm very happy to be here today. And I love that journey for you, Carissa. You take down that patriarchy. That's right. And not only does he know the power of the dog, but he's also an expert in the position that shares its name. It's Kevin Dillon. I have my Bronco Bronco Henry saddle ready to go, and I'm ready to ride. Oh, my God. (laughs) All the boys love it when you present your tentpole releases, Kevin. So with that being said, if you listen to our other Best of 2021 specials, you notice that we had a special guest from another podcast. Alas, our guest for this episode had to back out. So it's just us cultural debaters. But our best of episodes are a little bit different than our usual format. No polls, no brackets, barely even any debating. Our finalists just go through and do a pop culture show and tell on our individual top three films of the year. These could be released in actual theaters or simultaneously released on a streaming platform or even just films that were always intended to air on television. Do you disagree with some of our picks? Do you want to add your own favorites to the discussion? Head over to greatpopculturedebate.com and leave a comment on this episode or find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook and tell us what you think. With that out of the way, let's get to those top threes. I'm going to do this in alphabetical order, so I am up first. And my first pick is Dune. So this one is going to be divisive. Uh, I know at least one other person on this podcast has seen it. Kevin, has anybody else seen it? Yes. Okay. Jim? Oh, so I'm the only one out. But I have, a, okay. I have a question later for it, so I won't Good. listen. Um, so I know Kevin does not care for this film, right? I'm mixed. All right. I'll say that. Carissa? I was bored. Okay. So thank you. That tees up where we're going. So um, I'm surprised by how divisive it is. I think part of the issue is that Denny Villeneuve's remake of Frank Herbert's sci-fi classic was so massively hyped. Like um, going into this, I don't know if any film could have delivered on the expectations that people had because it was for months, if not years, people were salivating over this film. And yet, from where I'm sitting, I think he actually delivered exactly what I was expecting. Part of the issue is that the source material here is incredibly difficult to translate to film. I've read not the entire first book, but a healthy chunk of it. Um, and the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, how are they going to... And I had watched, by the way, the the previous version done by um, David Lynch. Um, but I was like, I don't know how you can make this more digestible because a lot of the criticisms I hear of this version of the film is that it is dense, it is deliberately paced, and it's sometimes difficult to follow. That's literally how I would describe the book. 
It is incredibly dense. It is very, very slow paced. Um, and it's there's a lot of stuff that you're just like, I have no idea what they're talking about, but I guess I'm just going to go along with it. Um, if you watch the David Lynch version, I'd also describe it that way, except for the last hour, which is when he tried to rush through like the entire second half of the book, at least. And Villeneuve made the smart decision, in my opinion, to say, I'm not even going to attempt that. It's not possible. I'm going to split it into two, maybe three films and just focus on kind of like the landing on Araco. It's not Araco. What's the actual planet called? Is it Araco? Arrakis. Arrakis. I'm thinking Araco from the X-Men comic books. Thank you, Kevin. Hmm. I got you. You got me. And so the fact that he's splitting it into multiple films, I think, was the right move to make. But apparently people didn't know that going in. Like, Kevin, did you know this is going to be multiple films? Well, so I knew that. But the, the my my frustration largely was that part two had not been um, given the go ahead. Um, nor had it been, like normally in a film with a film or a t- quote unquote tentpole like this, y- they would have been filmed congruent like together concurrently yep Uh, so i'm like okay so this is part one to a movie that may not have a part two uh okay that was part of my frustration now if i maybe watch these two together i might have different you know i might be a little bit more mixed positive um but yeah i was just frustrated by that okay did you know it was gonna likely have sequels going in carissa or did you think this was just gonna be a standalone film yeah i think when i saw it um it had been out for a couple of weeks on hbo and so i knew that it was only the part one of it um and i and i'd seen uh the lynch dune i've also seen yodorowsky's dune which i think is a far better (laughs) film this documentary about this crazy director trying to make a dune that's just like off the off the rails yeah um would recommend and so i knew that going into it and i just i and i thought it was beautiful like it was gorgeous and i but i just got bored halfway through i was like "Ah, i mean i guess i'll just continue because what am i gonna do but yeah so you actually are leading brilliantly to my next part which is what what i appreciated the most about this film is the world building that villeneuve does because to me he immediately, I feel like, immersed me in this world, which is incredibly alien and foreign, but it all like kind of makes sense from a stylistic perspective. I think the the scenes, the set designs, the 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 tech designs, the the costuming is so cohesive and it's rich. And I was just I was one hundred percent transported. Um, I think the cast is uniformly great. I think Oscar Isaacs, who can be a little touch and go with me, but I thought he was really solemn and regal as the doomed count rebecca ferguson is amazing and she's perfect in a very challenging role in as lady jessica stellan skarsgård is unrecognized like i knew i was like who is that i know that the, the, the bad he's the bad guy his name's count harkonnen and i was like i can't place it but i he's so familiar to me it's stellan skarsgård and it like took a moment to click before i got it and then i think timothy chalamet really proves again that he's he's one of our next great leading men he totally is able to carry this film and he brings a lot more layers to the role of paul than kyle mclaughlin did in the original in my opinion um but i'm much more invested in in this story than i was when i was watching the lynch version So I know that a lot of people were frustrated that it is not, quote, a full film, that it's half a story, possibly a third of a story. But I guess I I didn't quite get that because for me, the film does stand on its own. If you look at the original Star Wars film, 
it, it takes Luke from his starting point. He goes through challenges and then he's left kind of now in this new reality where he's a leader in this rebel alliance. That's basically the same arc as Dune, right? Am I am I incorrect on this? It didn't. It, yeah. Yeah. I think it's very similar. I think it's very similar. I don't think people look at A New Hope as an incomplete film. No, they don't. So it's curious to me that people look at Dune as an incomplete film. And and that's just one example. I'm not using it as the only example, but it's uh, that was a strange criticism to me because I think, I think it's time though. Like back then, that's not what folks were expecting. Post, you know what I mean? Like that's not what folks were expecting. Post a new hope, they were they weren't keyed up the way we are now for sequels or more extensions of a universe or you know it was like 1978. So it's like that was lighting the world on fire in a way because that was new and inventive and creative for that time. Whereas now it's like, okay, like that is tale as old as time. Yeah. And I I see that. And I think that's a fair point. I guess if the approach is similar, yes, it's a different time. But if, since the sequel had not been greenlit by the time this came out, if this is the only part that got made, I still think it stands on its own. I really do. I think it takes the hero on a journey. I think he's transformed by the journey. I mean, this is, you know, the classic uh, Joseph Campbell shit, right? Um, And I think it it does what it sets out to do. Yes, it's like you introduce a bunch of characters in the last 30 minutes of this movie that I I don't get to see any other bits of. Um, You want to see more of them. And that's why I'm like, cool, so you should be really engaged by what's coming in part two. Um, But it sounds like, like, Carissa, you found it boring. Was it just how talky it was? Was it just the pacing that you found to be just too slow? I think it was the pacing. And I also just, like... The like sci-fi is not really my jam, and so it, you know, it like it wasn't. It had a big uh, uphill climb to uh, for me to like it in the first place, and then yeah, the the pacing of it just being so slow, I was just like, yeah, no, you kind of had your chance, and so yeah, interesting. I, I, I like listen. Everyone's got different stakes different takes right different strokes different folks uh, in my opinion i think it accomplished what it was setting out to do i think it's quite an achievement um i think there's a lot of really brilliant choices here and i personally did not feel let down by it at all and i'm very engrossed in this story and i'm so curious to see where it goes uh so that's my stump on dune uh your mileage may vary um jim you're the only one who hasn't seen it but yeah Kevin, Chris, did you? Oh, go ahead, Jim. Well, I have a question for all of you. Yes. Um, yeah. So my uh, my dad, my brother, some friends, they all loved Dune. They've read it and they were really excited. And I've heard good things about it being accurate to the book. For me, I've just kind of, uh, it hasn't been something I'm that I dive into or anything like that. So I've kind of uh, skirted a- around it all this time. My question to you is, if I do want to dive in, yeah. Should I wait till part two comes out and watch it all together? In my opinion, I would wait until part two is about to come out and then Mm. I would watch this and then go into part two. However, I will also say that I I watched it at home on HBO. We have a gigantic television. I imagine this film in an IMAX setting would be incredible because the vistas, I mean, there's also like he does some very cool stuff with sound design, especially when it comes to the sandworms and the diggers. Um, 
I think that might be the ideal way to watch this. But even if you're watching it at home, I think there's no point in you watching it now, knowing that the sequel's mm-hmm. coming. Is it 2023 or 2024? I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even think they've set necessarily a production start date for yeah. it. So if you want to watch it, Jim, I would honest, uh, my recommendation actually would be to watch it now okay. mm-hmm. because that way you can like potentially build the excitement for yourself and be like, I'm in or like, like for me, I will watch the sequel. I will probably rewatch this one just to give it a shot again. It's not a movie that I by any means hated, although it did the crowd. I saw it with, it felt like they were at a Beatles concert and they were going to throw their underwear at Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> um, it was a little crazy. And I was like, okay, maybe that soured me a little bit on it. Um, but I just, um, I'll watch it. I, I want to, I know a lot of people who I, who love this film and I respect their taste. And it's something where I think I do need to give it a second chance knowing that stuff and it probably won't be for a while when that happens for me but i mean i say go in leap on leap on in i also feel like this is a film that you could watch with your older kids like there's nothing about it that i think is super adult um and if your kids like sci-fi i know you're a big star trek person if your kids are interested in sci-fi it might be like at least for like Elliot, sorry, am I not? Maybe I shouldn't say his name. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, it may be something. Uh, although Carissa, you could be like, "There's no way like a 12 year old is going to care about this movie, right? You're crazy." <laughs> it's entirely possible. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been dealing with that. Like, uh, I'm a Star Trek fan, yeah. And how to get you know how to introduce the kids to it? I've been holding off because I'm like, well, it's more of a you know the the stuff that grips me is more the philosophical talky talky stuff, and that's not going to grab a kid. So you're right that I think that um, finding the right time to introduce it. So maybe we'll all watch it together before the second one comes out or something like that. Well, there you go. So with that, I'm going to pass the baton to Jim for your first pick. Sure, and well, that's a good good transition. Um, as I prepared for this. I found that this might uh, turn into a therapy session for me. I, I'm going to lay back in my chaise lounge here and get into it. Um, as you, as we already mentioned, I have kids and three lovely boys all under the age of 10, and that dictates a lot of my time. Um, I'm lucky to have an hour or even half hour to like dive into something that's grown up uh, with, with my wife. And um, with COVID, there's even less time for things like date nights and getting out to the theaters for us. And so that's changed things. And then also in the in the Patreon f- uh, episode, we, we talked a little bit about how even the cinema has changed in, in the world of internet um, properties. Like they know that people have read Dune and they're going to get in and go see it. And does that change things a little bit there? Um, and so I, I find that I'm really, really excited about uh, things that are unique or a little different and not just um, revisiting things. Um, and so, you know, but, but then again, uh, last year, I didn't want to go to the Oscar, you know, I didn't want to watch all the Oscar films because they seemed a little too depressing for, you know, the times that they are. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, changing in, in how maybe I feel about film, but also about the world changing a little bit too. Um, so with that in mind, I'm going to start with uh the favorite kids movie in our house. <laughs> um, so at first I was going to say, man, my, my, my favorite films of the year in terms of kids films are a uh, Paw Patrol movie and the Clifford movie. Cause they babysit my four-year-old really well. <laughs> turn it on, he's hooked. He's somehow, they have this magic where he does not get bored of watching them a thousand times over. Um, but no, not really. Um, the best film that we saw that would maybe fall into that category in our opinion is, uh, is the film Luca, the Pixar film Luca. Um, 
what's great about it this uh sea monster story has a, a italian flinny style and it's brilliantly executed it's funny it's heartwarming it's about a lot of things it's about friendship feeling different openness self-acceptance community acceptance um, the director is actually quoted as saying that he hoped the idea of a sea monster could be a metaphor for ways of feeling different like being a teen or even a preteen um any moment where you feel odd um and that it's the, the focus on having to accept yourself first in whatever way you feel different um and a lot of that that thought behind it i think shows in the the story and and but also the style of it and as a film as a it's a real sweet film that we all kind of really enjoyed watching I will confess, I'm so bad. I'm way behind my, my Pixar films. So I didn't get to watch this. Did anybody else watch it? I did. I did not. I, it. I did love this movie yeah. so much. I think I hear film Twitter, and I will refer to them as that, <laughs> define this as slight Pixar. And I think they should go leap off a cliff um, because it is just so it's just such a great well-told story the animation is beautiful the score is beautiful um it, it is it's simple in its rendering and i think for me the problem with a lot of more recent pixar if they've gone into this like ethereal conceit that becomes too cumbersome and like weird and doesn't work like for example like soul is a mixed bag for me um but I loved this movie so much. Like I thought it was really, really, really great. And um, I'm glad it's something you're bringing up because I think it's one of the best animated movies of the year. Hands down. Yeah. I, I would like to watch it, Jim, and I'm glad that you nominated it. It's on Disney plus now, I think, is it not? I believe it so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things where I just never, I think the last Pixar movie I saw was onward. That was Pixar, right? Or is that Disney? That was so, Disney. Yeah, it's Disney, but so yeah, I'm not sure if it. So where then it falls. maybe that isn't the last Pixar movie. <laughs> Did I you saw. see Soul? I didn't see Soul. I'm way behind on my Pixar viewing. I'm terrible. Um, but they they're they're solid, right? And I've heard really good things about Luca. So thank you for bringing that up. And and my understanding is it's not strictly a kids film. It's a film that adults can enjoy as well. I mean, Kevin. No, as I was saying that, I was like, oh, I shouldn't say that because it is. It's you can appreciate it for what it is. Um, and I think maybe that's the difference that like people might put Pixar in a box of like oh, Cars movies and Toy Story movies, which adults can enjoy enjoy but they're maybe geared more towards kids this was maybe geared towards uh preteen in terms of the characters but it, it's a universal story great well thank you so, for sharing that and then the other thing i guess i'll just close out on because this also goes into some a lot of my movies i think the thing that I, I think that i love about luca is it allows young boys to see emotion in an animated film that often is missing and allows like a vulnerability to exist that I think movies lack, honestly. And I think that's the thing that really resonated with me with Luca. I, I think that's super important, especially as, you know, people are growing up. That's a nice thing to see in film. Yeah. And hopefully kind of dewire some of this toxic masculinity. Sorry if you're listening to this and you're triggered by that, but here we are. <laughs> Speaking of toxic masculinity, Carissa, talk to me about your first pick, because I think it's what, I, what I'm, I'm referring to. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, what a perfect lead-in. Um, it's almost like I planned that. <laughs> my first pick uh, for this year is a documentary that I think actually everyone on the panel has seen um, called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. Am I right in that? I believe so. Yeah. It is... Uh, when I was trying to think of how to describe it, I think it's kind of, uh, it's the horror prequel to the Firefest documentaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, uh, and you know, it, really interesting to watch in the year that, um, January 6th at the Capitol happened. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a documentary about Woodstock 99, which, um, was a 30 year anniversary and featured a band lineup of uh, Kid Rock, Limp Biscuit, all the angry white oh. male bands, and then Alanis, Jewel, <laughs> and Cheryl Crow, I think. Yeah. There, was, there were the three women. Peppered in one a day, right? Yep, yeah. one per day. And uh, and Moby was there and talks on the documentary about just like driving up and having this just visceral feeling of something bad is happening here. And I don't want to, I do not want to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the documentary just, uh, it uses a lot of the MTV footage from the time because you could uh, pay-per-view to watch the the weekend um, if you couldn't go. And I was, um, I was just out of high school. I was a new adult and I really wanted to go and I couldn't um, and was really bummed about it and also didn't have access to MTV. So I couldn't watch um, that stuff. But I remember um, learning throughout the weekend that it was not actually a very fun time um, and feeling kind of grateful that I did not go. And so now as a much older adult, being able to see the footage of what actually happened, I'm horrified, horrified. Um, the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's such an interesting, um, cultural point where it happened. Um, because it kind of was the first uh, distillation of all of this angry white male energy with nothing for no reason and with no place to put it and just being able to watch it unfold over a weekend of them just you know taking over um it was also kind of um the start of the girls gone wild moment and the sexploitation of the women that is there is just horrifying and then the sexual assaults that happened um the venue was just um horrifically terrible it was just black asphalt and beating sun and water cost the same amount as beer so what do you think people were doing and it just it was just a recipe for disaster and so it really is i don't know i think the documentary is a really interesting thing to watch especially because you know where are those you know 20 year old men who did th- who did these riots and lit these fires and you know raped these girls um are they the 45 year olds who stormed the capital you know i don't know maybe this is the same you know the same kind of crowd maybe this informs some of our present if we can look at uh this piece of our past yeah so chris literally as we're watching that i literally said to my partner i was like these people who are on this thing right now are the same people that are like storming the capitals kidnapping governors out in the midwest like that's who these people are and it is a documentary capturing a moment from the past but it is so relevant to the current cultural conversation because all these entitled douche bros in this film are now 40 and 50 something year old men who are 
really trying to unravel democracy because they're pissed off that that's not they're not able to go around and grabbing people by the pussies anymore right like let's just be very candid right um i think it is a really good documentary and an important statement on the world as it is today and how it has changed and how people are trying to fight back against that change, which is, it's kind of marling. The part that really shocked me watching this, I mean, there's a lot of really, first of all, like as terrible it was that MTV was trying to make a buck off of that the way everybody else was, which was part of the problem. Um, I'm so grateful that we have all the footage of it for this, something like this, because it's, there's so much footage in this thing, but where they're interviewing today, like 2020, 2021, the people who were the organizers of the festival and they bring up the sexual assault that was happening of the women. And even today in 2020, 2021, they're like, well, if those girls didn't want to get, uh, you know, touched and, and, and uh, molested, they shouldn't have been going around topless or mm-hmm. they shouldn't have been behaving the way that I'm like, you're saying this on camera. Like, what, mm-hmm. what are you thinking? It was shocking to me. Absolutely shocking. Kevin, Jim, do you guys have any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, my, my wife and I watched it and it was, you know, on my list of possible ones to talk about, but honestly, I rated it a little lower because it was just uncomfortable to, to be there, and I and I, I'm a, I question the the documentary's um, heavy-handed thesis a little bit. Um, like, for example, yes, that all that all that footage was captured for pay-per-view. Did they reach out to the people who were topless about if they wanted to be in this documentary? Oh, I'm sure they. I didn't. don't. Th- no. I think they didn't. I think uh, you signed over your your rights, and so while it's being it is you know pushing that that narrative, it is still kind of doing some of that stuff by by making that so in your face because it is every every shot they have possible they put in that film um but i don't think it's glorified at all though i like i think by the end it's like gross and you're supposed to like think that it's gross yes oh absolutely and that and it it leaves you with uh kind of you know if you're in the right place to think about like why was any of that not not just that but the 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 attitudes the music everything the lyrics of the songs why was any of that okay? Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. why was that normal, yes. you know, society played on the radio? Yes. Like, a, um, you know, I, I, I turned on, uh, a, a, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I used to listen to Prodigy. I'm going to turn on that album. Oh, and it smacked my yeah. bitch up. And it's yep. like, why did I ever listen to that song and sing along <laughs> to it and not think like, huh, I shouldn't be saying these things. And, you know, like that's, it, it just was a different norm and it is it's a great comparison to see um then and now and how hopefully many of us have grown and changed and and reflected on on that world hopefully Mm. uh kevin i actually agree with jim it's not one of my favorite documentaries of the year i thought it was okay um i i don't know i did also agree i think sometimes you have to be my as you are as you do a documentary and my next choice we'll see you just have to uh, be it's hard to walk the tightrope of heavy handedness and conveying what is happening in the experience. And so I think there are pros that, that there are things this documentary does very well. And there are ways that I felt like it fell a little short for me. 
Um, and that's fair. Chris, I loved it unabashedly, and I concur with your recommendation here. You can watch it on HBO Max, by the way. It's I think it's part of the Music Box series, is it not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just wanted to say something about that. Um, so I don't know why they did the—so f- it was the first installment of this, which is a musical or a music-based documentary series of film-length uh, pieces. Um, and then it was months before they dropped something else, which was Jagged, um, the making of Jagged little pill and Alanis and that whole tour and stuff. Um, and since then there's been like four more, there's like a Kenny G one, there's a DMX something. And, um, so I'm really excited to see what else is happening in with the series. Um, it's cool. There's another new one that just came out this weekend. I think I could be wrong, but I remember reading that Alanis Morissette was trying to stop the release of a documentary that she had agreed to participate in. I'm pretty sure it was Jagged. It and was. Uh, I watched Jagged and I loved it. And there are moments, the, her specific objections were she didn't realize how much it was going to go into her past and her sexual exploitation. And she did not want that to be part of the film. And I noticed watching the film that there are times where they go right up to a line to talk about that. And then suddenly they're not talking about it anymore. So this is strictly me spitballing i do not know this to be true i'm not saying it is a fact but i would not be surprised if the reason that there's this really compounded release schedule now is there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes to re-edit jagged so that it was acceptable for people and that's what's caused this kind of like car pile up with the rest of them because they had to get that done first yeah could be just a theory not saying it's a fact bottom line so far, I've loved every one of those music boxes I've watched. I think they're they're great. I hope HBO does m- more of them. They're they're a really interesting documentary series. So thank you for bringing that up, Kevin. I'm going to pass it to you for your first pick. Yeah. So I'm also my first pick is also a documentary. Um, it's the docu- It's called Flea. Um, it's a Danish film. Um, I saw it at New York Film Festival. You can see it. It is playing in limited release. I know it is at uh, AMC at Lincoln Center right now. I would not be shocked if it's available for VOD sooner. Um, it is uh, from the uh, studio Neon, um, and they have been releasing their international features a little bit earlier in VOD. Um, so want to start with all of that stuff. So Flea centers around um, uh, a, an immigrant to Denmark um, who becomes friends with the person who directed the film. Um, and this essentially chronicles, so it's a documentary and it's also animated. Um, and so, uh, it chronicles this person's, uh, essential asylum seeking from Afghanistan to Denmark. Um, and essentially this is a film that chronicles this man's uh, shyness and, fear of telling his story about being an immigrant about fleeing his home country which was ravaged by chaos and war whose father was murdered by the government um and and talks about him and his family leaving afghanistan and and traveling through the soviet union and traveling through um trying to um cross country lines in order to to be safe and essentially what it chronicles is largely the fear that asylum seekers have in sharing their stories because of the the difficulty in being an immigrant, um, especially as you um, 
uh, kind of have to navigate the vulnerability that exists in there because it's it starts out so the the the, the subject matter is um, a queer man um, and he has never shared his story and he's about to you know settle down with his partner find a home and it, it, it this story gets told in 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 conjunction with him essentially trying to lay down roots um, and when I tell you I sobbed at many points in this film I did. It is beautiful. The animation, while not necessarily the strongest part of this, is not necessarily the main premise of this. It's just, it's just so beautiful. And the music throughout, there's a lot of like really great 80s pop music that exists. So I know it sounds like it's sad and and it largely has very sad moments, but um, it kind of uh, helps tell this story of this person figuring out how to have this journey throughout this time and like, you know, falling in love with someone. So there's one part of the movie where he meets someone and like, you know, can I, can I be vulnerable? And it's a lot about that. And, um, and, and the centers center on being queer and being an immigrant and telling your story. It's, one of the most beautiful films I have seen this year. And it just, I, from the, I literally sat in my seat um, for probably a good 10, 15 minutes after and just was like blown away by it. Um, it's, it's pretty powerful. And so it's, it's Denmark's selection for their international feature contender this year. And it, so it could actually be the first film to be nominated in international feature documentary and animated feature at the Oscars this year. Wow. That's amazing. Has anybody else seen it? No, but it's on my list. I've heard really wonderful things. So that's exciting. Yeah. Sounds really good. I have not seen it yet though. I have not either. Um, I, I will confess, I don't think I've said this earlier, like, I think I saw maybe three episode, three movies in the theater this year. We're still being very hesitant about going back into the theater due to some other issues. Um, but I'm eager to get back in to see these types of movies because it sounds great, Kevin. So thank you for sharing it. Yeah. Uh, with that, we are actually going to take a quick break and we will be right back for round two of our picks after these messages. Welcome back to our best of 2021 film episode. We're going to move right on to our second round of picks and I'm up again. My second pick is Bo Burnham inside. This is a film that was made for Netflix and uh, it may have been in wide release too. I don't, I'm not aware, but uh, so I was not super familiar with Mr. Burnham or his work prior to catching this film. Uh, it came out right at the tail end. I'm going to say of lockdown for the majority of us uh it's when things were starting to look like things were going to open up and um i think we were all still firmly in the lockdown mindset which is so appropriate for this film because the whole thing is really about and was created during lockdown and even though that was an awful experience for all of us um it's uh, an amazing film, and it makes me want to go back and learn more about him because I thought this was brilliant, it was intelligent, and it was very, very raw. So it's a comedy film, it's a sketch show, it's a musical, it's a confessional, it's a therapy session, and all of it is done by Burnham himself. Like, he wrote it, he directed it, he edited it, he did the music. This is how he spent his pandemic. And um, while I'm grateful that he did that, I also want to, you know, reach out to Bo Burnham and be like, 
you okay, hon? Like, it, it, it's pretty rough. Um, Inside captures Burnham going through the many, many emotions that emerged from forced quarantine for basically a year. I, I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I remember going into it being like, wait, so I can't leave the house for at least a couple of months. I have to stay on my couch and not see people. That doesn't sound so bad. I could live with that. You know, there's a lot of things. I need to catch up on a lot of TV shows, some video mm-hmm. games. It sounds okay. And then after we started getting into it, um, it was a lot less awesome. And, you know, um, it quickly turned into dread and isolation. And if you were on your own, some probably some pretty significant feelings of loneliness. And Burnham got that. And he put it all out there in this special via observation and song. Um, I make this sound very serious and depressing. And there are certainly parts that are very much that. But there are also really funny parts of this film. The, the phone call with his mom is 100% my reality. Like that is absolutely how that happens. Um, the white lady Instagram posts are hilarious. The sexting bit, 100% true, very funny. Um, and it's all, it's biting, but I don't feel like it's punching down. In my, maybe, okay, maybe the white lady Instagram posts are punching down. Uh, I will admit to that one. They deserve it. Uh, well, there you go. But um, I can't speak for everyone. I just, I found this to be, it was witty, it was brutal, but ultimately I found it very cathartic. And I think we needed this film this year. It's a film that could not have been created at any other point in history had we not gone through what we've all been through in the past two years. I realize that's a very small comfort given what that cost all of us, but I consider this film to be a tinfoil lining on an otherwise very dark cloud. Did anybody else happen to see this? I did. Um, I think this is an excellent movie. Bo Burnham at 100% gets isolation. He directed and wrote the film Eighth Grade as well, which imagine complimenting a film written by a cishet, straight white male, no, again, uh, talking about a, a 12-year-old girl in in middle, uh, you know, in or well, like what's eighth grade? 13? Yeah. 13 year old girl. And like in actually getting it, like in getting the perspective of that person. Cause it's hard. It's harder, you know? Um, but he gets that. And this kind of is a continuation of his filmography, if you will. I, he's just a really intelligent his comedy specials are great. And and this is I, I think a next level for him. Um he he just really is incredibly talented and his songs are really great he's nominated for a bunch of grammys for the songs that he wrote like he's he's the real deal and he's really great i i I really love this film did anybody else happen to see it no and but i also um for whatever reason a failing of mine is i don't push play on um stand up and Mm. for you telling me that it's a mixture of things makes me much more interested um, I like the idea that it might go go different places than what I was expecting in the first place. Yeah. And honestly, Jim, it's funny you say that because when I first saw it, I also was like, is this a stand up thing? And it's not like it, it's it's I, I would not even really clarify it as stand up because he's not standing up in front of everybody. It's recorded in what appears to be like his shed. So, yeah, that sounds it, awesome. Actually, it, it's interesting. Uh, Carissa, did you see it or I have not? Uh, but I've been hearing nothing but wonderful things all year about it. I just have I. I feel like I have to be in the right mindset as somebody who does live alone and did go through a lot of feelings of 
isolation and loneliness during the pandemic, I, I just felt like I needed to make sure I was in a solid state (laughs) before diving in. So I totally get that because if you listen to our best of 2021 TV uh, edition, someone nominates it's a sin on HBO. And I was like, Uh, I really want to watch it. I'm very interested in watching it. I have not been able to do that because like, I'm not going to say I lived through that. That was a little bit before my time, but I was close enough to it that it's still, it's like radiating pain to me. So I need to be in the right place to, and it sounds like it's kind of similar for you. So yeah. um, with that being said, I'm going to pass it over to Jim for his second pick. All right. Well, I think, and it's that's a good transition. Um, Well, first of all, I'm not a completist of the podcast yet. I'm sorry, guys. Um, You're fine. I'm slowly digging in the back catalog and, you know, again, it's it's hard for me to listen to you vulgar animals using <laughs> in front of my children. I can't be playing it, you know. So true. Yeah, it's true. So I thought, you know, my my pick that's been on my list for quite a while um, that I wanted to talk about is in the Heights, and I thought I would go back and listen to the uh, the episode on Tony Winners of, for Best Musical. <laughs> Eric's laughing because he knows he eviscerated it. He was arguing so hard that I am kind of afraid to talk about this film. No, this is a safe space, Jim. (laughs) Um, But there were a lot of great things other than what Eric said about this film. And, um, uh, you know, in in that episode. So I think it'd be redundant to say some of some of the things that were said there. I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode if they have not. It's really fun. but, you know, I don't want to bring those feelings up in you either again, Eric. I'm you sorry. are good. I, I've gotten them out. I've, I've let out the poison. I'm good to go. <laughs> but, well, see, here's the thing. The reason um, I, it's been on my list is because there are some things that have been created this year that I'm just happy they exist because some people would not be able to experience them in any other way. I had heard of In the Heights. I have not been able to get out to theater to see it performed. Um, even if it was in the theater and not streaming, I wouldn't have been able to see it um, in our situation. And um, the fact that I was able to see this show full of life and energy and um, interesting story and all, it was... Um, it was, in my opinion, it, it came across more than what I expected of it because I had heard such great things, um, you know, the, the Hamilton time and things like that. Um, and so I was thankful to have the opportunity to see it. And it really did just kind of bring a whole bunch of, of joy um, into, you know, I, into my, my viewing of it, I think, and, and, and to, to my life. Kevin, you were the one who defended In the Heights on that Tony episode. What did you think of the film? I actually think the film is even better than the stage production. I was actually just talking about this yesterday at work. Um, We were talking, I was talking about how excited I was to see West Side Story, which I did. And I'll plug that quickly, that it's very good and go out and see it. I thought In the Heights was great. I know the film garnered some controversy around colorism, which, you know, I, as a white individual, I'm not going to necessarily speak to because it's not my experience. Um, and I know that there is a valid argument to speak to with regards to that. Um, with that said, I do think that the musical succeeds in presenting a film that is really great in bringing a stage show that feels, I think one of my problems with the stage show is it feels very trapped. It feels very confined. Um, and Washington Heights is, is vibrant and alive and not to say that the musical doesn't do that, but the film really lets you like 
rise up and explore this community in the way it's meant to be explored. Um, and I think John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians, really has a great sense of, like Spielberg with West Side Story, has a really great sense of, I hope the two of them continue to make musicals. I think John M. Chu's doing uh, Wicked. Um, but there's a sensibility there. He understands the musicality, understands how to direct this. Um, unlike some other folks who've directed musicals, please stop Rob Marshall. Uh. Uh, but I think In the Heights is just really, really great, really fun. Anthony Ramos is excellent and adorable. Um, Olga Meredes, who plays uh, a, the Abuela character, she's just so great. Mm-hmm. She's so great. And I wish she was in the conversation for a supporting actress. Uh, Oscar, I would love to see that. Um, it, it's just a great movie. I really liked it. It's probably right now, I think it falls somewhere in my top 20. Um, I, I really, really liked In the Heights as a movie. I thought it was great. So you would say that the filmmaking heightens the experience? Uh, uh, oh, I had to put one more dad joke in there. I love it. You have a brand and I, and I support That's, you I'm going pushing your brand. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Do it. <laughs> like I said in the Tim Burton episode too, when I was talking about Sweeney Todd, there are are film musicals that really take advantage of the cinematic aspects and enhance the material you know you can argue me on that for for Sweeney Todd but it added to bigger it, I think they took big swing swings with in the heights like um you know sure there was like some visual writing on the screen and magical realism that um was different than just people singing and dancing, but it was even more than that. And I think that actually kind of added to it, even though whether I liked it or not, I think it added, it it showed that there was a direct kind of vision that, that brought more to it. I agree. And honestly, Jim, I enjoyed the movie more than I liked the show. I I, I thought that the movie version was a improvement on almost every level. So I know you were afraid that I was going to come for you. (laughs) Not at all. I think it's a a really good pick for this year. I am dismayed at how, at least what I read, kind of the film um, kind of Twitterverse, it likes to use In the Heights as a punching bag. And I don't think it's deserving of that. I really think if you look at it on its own, I'm not going to argue that it was a huge success, but I Mm -hmm. do think that having the release on HBO did allow a lot more people to see that movie than maybe otherwise would have gone to see it. So that's, that's what I was saying before. Like I do, I enjoy that I got to see it, you know, and that it was, it's getting to hear a different voice from the typical mainstream stuff that might be churned out to, to uh, enjoy the life and energy of it. I think that those things are there. Um, You know, my, I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, I don't know your TV episode. I'm sure you didn't talk about it. The morning show with Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston. Uh, we've um, talked about it on culture club, but I don't think we've yeah. talked. It wasn't covered in the TV episode yet. No. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a good show, but it, it, it does bring up. <laughs> Ooh, like, Jim, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, and we watch it and we're like, Oh, why are we, why are we doing this? But like at the end of the episode, we're like, I think they were trying to say this about the me too movement, or they were trying to say this about the coronavirus or whatever. And, for us, we're beyond what it's trying, what it's doing. Like we're trying to like find more meaning, but I'm glad that show exists for people who may not have thought about those things, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that's not that this is the same comparison, but I think there's a lot of media out there that even if it's not our thing, it's good that it exists. Absolutely. Agree completely. And, and, and I think that's what Kevin helped me to understand in the Tony's episode, to pull it back mm-hmm. to that, was, well, it's not made for you, baby, but that's <laughs> right. very important that it exists for this community. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, 100. Got it. Carissa, did you happen to see In the Heights or no? 
I did because of the HBO thing. I Yay. watched all of them. Um, and yeah, I found it really enjoyable, really fun. It was, it kind of made me feel wistful for, you know, be like being able to be outside around people, sure. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it was, it, yeah, it, it hit that, uh, bit of my heart a little bit. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fun and, and good. And I loved yeah, the energy and the color. And, and 2021 is, and I know you're going to talk about something else, Eric, I think, uh, is the year of the musical, like good, mm-hmm. at, good, medium, bad, like yep. there, we have it all. And it's kind of exciting to me. Like uh, there have been musicals like this, which I really enjoyed musicals. I hated Annette. Oof. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, but you, to have all of these musical films exist, I think for any film lover is a treat. Agreed. Agreed. And if you haven't listened to our best movie musical episode, I think that was season two or three. I can't remember. I can't keep up to date. I think it was two. Go check that out because we we have some good conversation with that. But Carissa, I want to go to you. Speaking of wistful, I believe you were rather wistful about your second pick. Um, Yeah, my other picks are actually really fun. Um, So I went to the movies three times this summer. Um, I saw two films. I saw Shyamalan's Old, um, and then I saw The French Dispatch two times. So, um, But you liked it, I'm guessing. I loved it. It's uh, Wes Anderson's 10th film. It's the, um, the first one since his last one, which was I Love Dogs. And it's, uh, it's brilliant. It's gorgeous. His stuff always is. I, I'm such a Wes Anderson super fan, so, you know, this, I'm already biased toward it, but... I thought that there's a lightness to this film that's kind of missing in the the last two. They, you know, it gets a little heavy. There's not to say that there is no deaths in this one because there are, but it just feels, I don't know, everything feels a little lighter. And it's just so much him doing everything he does best. And so just to give you a taste, the town in France that is the dispatch office of the um, Kansas uh, newspaper um, is called Ennui Sur Blase. <laughs> and um, there is one section that's um, a, a youth uprising and their slogan translates to the children are grumpy. <laughs> like, it's just there's Owen Wilson on an orange bicycle in the first like five minutes and I I sobbed the first time I saw it I just I I could not contain the joy of finally seeing this film which has been in the works for a long time um and being in the theater and feeling safe enough to be in that atmosphere at that time um and it lived up to all the expectations it's gorgeous the cast is incredible everyone is in it everyone tilda swinton plays this amazing art critic benicio del toro is like this crazy painter Francis McDormand is the reporter who's helping the the grumpy children rewrite their manifesto. <laughs> like it's just, it, and it's Timothy Chalamet is in it with the best hair. I just, it, it's so great, and uh, I loved it so much. Um, I used to absolutely adore Wes Anderson movies, and I kind of got a little bit, uh, uh, um, not tired of them, but it was just like, are we going anyplace different? Um, mm. but you are making me want to check this one out. I will tell you that right yeah. now. Yeah, He flexes some, he flexes some really fun muscles. There, there's like, 
it's in color. Parts of it are in black and white. There's some animation. There's some like freeze frames, but everyone is just holding still and just panning over these crowds. It's incredible. And he's just like having fun. And Bill Murray is just like the editor that everyone wishes they had. Like he's just, it's just, it's lovely. So much about it is just lovely. And talk about world building, you know, uh, yeah, it's just every shot. Incredible. I'll give you another another reason to see it. Tilda Swinton essentially does a Barbara Walters impersonation. Oh. So <laughs> it's she's so she's my favorite in the whole film. She's, she's my favorite. Great. I'm stumping for a Jeffrey Wright Oscar nomination for oh, this film. Yes. He's incredible in this movie. It you're it's you're right, Carissa. This was one of those movies that like it was filled, it was uh, shown at can can in competition and what i had heard kind of disappointed me and bummed me out a bit and i cuz it, it got like mixed mixed positive i would say mm. and then when i saw it i was like this was great this was really maybe not his best but it was really good and like it's his best in a while it, for yeah, sure yes yeah. it was just really good different lane for him mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's yeah it's just so wonderful and especially in this year and so the part of why i went to see it again is because of how rich every single shot is you know and and the first time i was kind of like shorting out with joy <laughs> you know <laughs> crying um so seeing it again, I was able to pick up on a bit more and really kind of like spend time just drinking it in. It's it's, it's lovely. Yeah, you, you've definitely sold me. So I definitely need to check that one out. Um, I, I don't know when it's coming to home video at all, but uh, I, I have every intention of checking it out. So thank you, Carissa. Yeah, uh, go see it. Jim, you didn't see it, did you? It's on the top of my list once it's streaming. There you go. Yeah. Same. Uh, Kevin, your second pick. I am going to go with uh, Drive My Car as my second pick. So Drive My Car is a Japanese... This is going to maybe throw some people off. It's a three-hour Japanese film. I'm going to lead with that. But when I tell you it was the breeziest three hours I've ever sat in a theater for, I'm not lying. So it's directed by... um, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his first name, so I will say a director with the last name Hamaguchi. Um, he essentially takes a, 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 a Murakami Japanese short story and Chekhov and brings these two pieces together and creates a story about um, an acclaimed theater actor who navigates um, grief, loss, and explores his own vulnerability Um, without giving too much away. It explores his relationship with his wife. It explores their um, uh, experience of losing a child. If you haven't gotten the pit, I apparently like bummer movies, but that's just, I'm I'm, I'm able to manage my emotions, I guess. Um, But this film is just a really, really beautiful exploration of grief, loss, who we are as people. Again, I think the other thing that really spoke to me about this film is um, the way, again, in which it explores the way men handle their emotions and the emotions connected to their partner, the loss of their partner, and their inability to handle them. I think that's a big piece of the puzzle with regards to this. Um, I think the interesting thing, the other interesting thing about this film as well is that it is, well, it is a Japanese film. It also... um, 
empowers or brings into the fold actors who speak multiple different Asian languages and also it brings in a sign language, it brings in uh, sign language as well. Um, And so it it is a a movie about how we speak with one another and how we interact with one another and engage with each other um, as we explore different cultures, different ideas. Um, And I think the thing that really spoke to me most about this is, is really the poignancy of the simplicity or the simple experience of just driving a car and being in a contained space and the vulnerability that we we convey as we connect to folks as we're in those spaces and how do we move forward through them um and and i just really loved this movie i i saw it at lincoln center uh two weeks ago now and it is still playing there um and it really um is a film that uh, has I've every day kind of thought about a piece of the film and why something happened. I will say for most of my movies, I don't necessarily want to spoil plot points because I think it's important to see a movie like this without knowing some of the surprises that pop up. Um, but what you explore in them is how you handle those interactions and how they impact you the same way as the lead. And I think that's why this film is so successful. I think what's also amazing is Hamaguchi had two major films that came out this year. The other one was called Happy Together. Both played Khan, both played the New York Film Festival. This man is a genius and you should check out his filmography along with this film when it comes to BOD. And again, this is, I think, also a neon film. Um, and again, their films will more likely than not be released sooner on VOD. So look for this on VOD if this is not playing in a theater near you. I think it may already be on Amazon Prime. I could be really, wrong, but I was scrolling through last night and I thought I saw it because I was like, oh, I know that car. I, I know that that film. Um, but I could be maybe it was something else. But I, I swear I thought I saw it. You um, might be right. You know, Kevin, it's so interesting. I had never even thought about this, but the way you were describing how we allow ourselves a level of vulnerability when we're in a car which is a contained space so we feel safe mm-hmm. and yet we are we have that f- sense of freedom um there is a truth to that because it's very therapeutic i have to say like i'm in the middle of a job transition right now and it was do i keep my car and keep the 30 something minute commute to Long Island every day, or do I get on a crowded subway full of people? And I was like, I find a level of like mental reset in my car commute that I would feel the opposite of if I was taking the subway where I would feel trapped and claustrophobic. And I never feel that way in my car. So what a weird, interesting idea. And also very Japanese that they would like make that association. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's really interesting the way in the film, the, the main character he um, feels, I think, a level of empowerment with driving himself. And something happens to him in the film where he cannot drive himself. So he's, uh, but he he goes to work with a, a, a theater company and he's assigned a driver. And it's not because of what happens to him, but he's assigned a, a driver. They they And maybe it is because of what happened to him, but they essentially posit it as, no, we actually do this from a standpoint of, we don't want a liability uh, on you. But what happens is he builds a relationship with this young woman who is his driver. And their relationship, she's centers on his loss of his own child and and in a way forms this like father daughter figure relationship that 
you know, really lands and the, their relationship um, as they work, you know, drive together to these different spaces really forms and they, they bond over their own grief and loss together. And, and it's just a really lovely story. I love to just sit in a movie like that for three hours where I can just sink into the story. And that's what this film does. It lets you just sink into the world and lets you kind of ride along for it, uh, for a lot for, I'll go with my own level of pun right along in the car with them. And it, it's a really beautiful film. Very nice. Uh, Jim or Chris, have either of you seen it? No, but it's on my list. It sounds really good. And if, if all that didn't sell you already, um, maybe the fact that it's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes might oh. as well. Okay. And won and won the New York Film Critics Best Film Prize, so nice. um, it's great movie. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Kevin. Um, with that, we are going to take another quick break, and we will be right back with our final round of picks for the best films of 2021. We'll be right back. We are back with our last round of the best of 2021 film episode. Before we wrap things up, I want to ask our panel, where can people find you on social media? And I'm going to start with Jim. Well, I uh, can only handle Twitter. So I'm on Twitter at, at JCZAD. Um, All right. My, my yep. Carissa? Uh, I am on Twitter rarely and Instagram a little more frequently as uh, at Carissa Kloss on both platforms. And Kevin, how about yourself? You can find me arguing with people about film on Twitter uh, at ET Kevin's Mind. And you can find me if you want to do some maybe like DMing on Instagram uh, at Kevin underscore Dylan underscore 23. He's so tasteful, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing tasteful about my Instagram. Very tasteful. Um, And you can find me at Eric Resniak on all of the things. And make sure you're following at culture underscore debate on Twitter and at great pop culture debate on Instagram. So with that, let's get back to these final picks. My final pick of the year is Tick, Tick, Boom, which is on Netflix. Um, I'm going to go for my cheap pun, which is... Uh, this one blew me away. Um, I love Rent. I love Jonathan Larson's music. I had somehow never seen this show, and I'm not sure how that happened because I definitely knew it existed. Um, but what Lin-Manuel Miranda, who throwback to In the Heights, uh, earlier pick, has done here as a director is just spectacular um i think he knocked this out of the park i don't know if it was his directorial debut kevin do you know that it was yeah this was his film directorial debut he killed it ladies and gentlemen Mm -hmm. i mean i expected him to have a very good sense on how to direct a musical number given his theater background but it wasn't just that it was also very cinematic and he layered in some magical realism moments that were really effective the swimming sequence with the notes on the pool brilliant i was just like fuck me this is good this is this is really smart filmmaking so let's go back for a second broad strokes film is set in 1990 uh tick tick boom is an autobiographical musical about a young aspiring playwright jonathan larson who is incredibly talented but can't seem to break through the machine that is broadway he is finally getting his chance to do a showcase of the very high concept musical that he has been toiling on for years but it is missing a key song in act two and he's out of ideas and quickly running out of time his girlfriend susan wants him to give up and move with her to the Berkshires like 
come on. Um, his best friend has a big secret that he's trying to tell him, but Jonathan can't hear it. And Jonathan has just turned 30 and knows that he is rapidly running out of time. That last part is even more poignant as we watch it, knowing that Jonathan Larson himself does in fact tragically die six years later on the eve of the debut of his masterpiece Rent, which would go on to make an indelible mark on both Broadway and an entire generation of Americans. So you cannot talk about this film and why it's so great without immediately mentioning Andrew Garfield, who plays the role of Jonathan Larson. Was I the only person who did not know that Andrew Garfield could sing? Did anybody else not know this? No. I didn't know it. I don't think I knew he could sing. I know he had. I knew he had done theater. I knew he had done plays, but I don't think I knew he could sing. And not only can he sing, he can sing like that. Like yes. he's terrific, ladies and gentlemen. He's just incredible in this film, and it was a great year for him. I mean, it was a shitty year for most of us, but Andrew Garfield had a great year. <laughs> this and the eyes of Tammy Faye. Like he's been, and of course, allegedly, we don't know this for sure, but allegedly, as part of the new Spider-Man film mm-hmm. that should be up by the time that this is airing. Um, it was a real return for prominence for him. And honestly, he should be getting a lot more leading roles because he just crushed this. He's so good in this movie. Um, Robin DeJesus is remarkable as the best friend, Michael, um, incredibly raw in moments. Their chemistry is great, frankly. Like I believe them as longtime friends. Um, Vanessa Hudgens isn't given a ton to do as a character, but she's great in her singing roles in Hollywood. It is time to give V. Hudge the leading lady spot that she's clearly ready for because she's a delight in everything she appears in. We rewatched Rent Live. It's on Amazon Prime over pandemic. And she's great as Rizzo. And she did that like a week after her father died. Amazing. Amazing. And while I was not feeling Alexandra Ship in the largely thankless role of girlfriend Susan, who I was literally booing every time she walked on screen <laughs> to pester Jonathan again while he's trying to write a song, Susan. When she started to sing Come to Your Senses, I got it. Like, what a, what a voice on that young woman. Um, just absolutely exquisite. So... I do want to speak briefly about the songs because the music in Tick, Tick, Boom is very much a kind of a proto-rent. So if you dig that show, you're probably going to find a lot to love here. Boho Days is an adorable little romp. Johnny Can't Decide is a tortured rock anthem. Therapy is ripping and a very true encapsulation of couples miscommunicating. Come to Your Senses is just a gorgeous ballad. And then I have had 3090 stuck in my head for weeks and have not been mad about it at all. It's the opening number. It's so good. Um, and for you Broadway theater nerds, the Sunday scene <gasps> is it star cameo after star cameo after star cameo, and I was gagging. It was like who did you gasp over most? I, I couldn't your- even tell you one after one right after the other. Like it was just a, maybe maybe Bernadette. I don't know, but like it was just incredible. I was like, holy shit! Ha- he had to pull a lot of favors to get those people in that scene. So if you have not watched Tick Tick Boom. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It really is, I think, the favorite film I saw this entire year. I know some of the others on this panel have have watched it. Do they have thoughts? I, I, I love this movie. I've seen it three times already. I think it's great. I think it's a great, great, great first film. I think it's a great musical. I gay guessed most at... Miss Cheetah Rivera. And then I would say after that, the movement that BB Newworth does in the yes. door. I'm like, I want to do that too. 
It was fantastic. It was exquisite. I think the more I watch it, the more I fall in love with it. And I know the criticisms I hear from it around, it's like, oh, do we need another male genius story? And I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. I get your, I get it. But like, he, it's just a really great story about this experience. And, and Tick, Tick, Boom, the reason you haven't seen it, Eric, more likely than not, is because it's never, I don't think, largely been a, a, an official Broadway show. It, yeah. When it originally came out, it was like 2002, and it was off-Broadway. Yeah. Um, and so, like, this movie vibrates. It's emotional. It's heartfelt. I think the first time I saw it, I had my, like, quibbles with it but i was like i want to go back to that i love the music and so i went back to it and i was like oh no i love this and i will be watching this many 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 times i think it's a movie for theater nerds hugely but i think i've had a lot of people say to me have you seen tick tick boom it's great who aren't theater people and i'm like that's why the movie works it brings people in I do want to respond to that criticism of do we need another movie about a male genius? Yes. We do need another movie about this particular male genius. Yep. Because like the whole it's almost like it's a prophecy, right? Like he knew his time was running out and he had no idea how like actually his time was running out. And we talked about this a little bit in the Tony winning theater podcast, which again, go listen to like, Imagine what this man would have created. That's what I just kept thinking watching this movie. Like, think of all the works we could have had from this man if that had not happened. Like, how tragic for all of us, for him and his family, especially, obviously. But, like, we all lost as a culture for this guy going out. And, frankly, the only other, like, male genius movie I can even think that this would, like, tie to is Amadeus. Because it's kind of the same thing, right? Like, cut out of his prime, out of nowhere, couldn't make the break. Um, And the 20s and 30-somethings of 2021 do not give a shit about Amadeus. Let me be very clear about that. That movie is not going to work for them. But I I thought this was wonderful. Carissa and Jim, did you happen to see it? I did. And I also really liked it. I haven't seen it more than once and I'm not sure how much I will rewatch it because it, it, it just it the overall my overall takeaway was it made me really sad and it was for the exact reason you were talking about Eric and so um yeah but I but I thought it was great like I love rent and so I really loved the sound of this and the music and I saw it right after after um Steven Sondheim passed oh god and, and he shows up in the film yeah. um and so like as a character um and I really yeah so I I thought it was great yeah Jim have you seen it or no no it sounds good and I'm gonna check it out yeah it's right on Netflix so easy to find folks you have no reason not to watch it um and I'm telling you that opening number if you are not like by the end of that like whoa okay I'm in I don't know what to, I, what's wrong with you where's your pulse like seriously so good it's exquisite uh Jim your third pick all right so like I mentioned at the top of the show and the reason I haven't seen tick tick boom yet um is that for I've I've confronted my own issue with a a film in my mind, I should see in its entirety in one sitting. And that's just not the life I lead right now that I can sit down for and do that. So that's why I've missed a lot of that stuff. But for some reason I can, 
with a documentary, I'm, I don't have that rule in my brain. So I've, you know, and we've had a lot of documentaries we've been talking about. It does feel like it's kind of the year of musical documentary. And I'll say that, um, you know, I can take away it like half an hour here or there, and it does seem to, you know, it, it's a good fit. That's why I'm complaining about time, but I still watch that eight hour Beatles documentary <laughs> <laughs> because I could just watch little pieces. My wife would fall asleep and I'd be like, Oh, cool. I'm just kind of hanging out with the Beatles now, you know? Um, but with that in mind, I, I kind of think this year in one, in one way is the year of music documentaries. You got the Beatles one, summer soul, velvet underground, jagged framing, Britney Spears, Woodstock 99, even, if hey if you're on the if you're on our discord if you if you become a patreon you can hear me ramble on about radiohead's kid amnesia online video game thing that they created um but the film in that category there's one that i've actually recommended and like you had said eric um it it was very early on in the year i kind of thought like oh it's it still is it's from this year i don't remember but it's um billy eilish the world's a little blurry and I think it would be it's overshadowed by a lot of other things, but it was really interesting to watch. Um, not because it's about a teen, you know, star or whatever. Um, not because it's you know the music. You know, I'm I like the music just fine, but it's not. I wasn't watching it as like a fan. Um, what's really interesting about it is the fi- family dynamic and how she isn't like a Britney Spears or something where kind of becomes a train wreck or something like that, at least in the film. Um, and I think a lot of that's due to the family dynamic they have of how they have support for her and, and like kind of suggest things, but they have some freedom because she is this powerhouse in terms of like what's going on in her life, but she's still a teenager kind of like figuring out the world. And, um, I kind of found it more uplifting and affirming than I, I may have originally expected. And so I, I kind of just say that because I, I think people should check it out because it's kind of a it's a good good one to check out. And I will say we discuss Miss Eilish in our 2021 music episode and mm-hmm. have a lot of really interesting thoughts about the album she released this year, which is called Happier Than Ever. Um, where can people watch this, Jim? I'm not even sure. I think it was on uh, Apple TV. Apple. It's on Apple TV. Yeah. yeah. That's where I think it's... I had just signed up and that was like the first thing. We're like, oh, sure, we'll check this out. And that's why I don't really, you know, it was just happened to be the first experience. I find her such a fascinating feature, a figure in a in the pop culture landscape, especially when you compare it, as you mentioned, to the Britney Spears. What an interesting, completely different tra- trajectory, right? Uh-huh. Fascinating mm-hmm. to me, genuinely. Um Carissa and Kevin, did either one of you see this documentary? No. Shockingly, of course I did. Uh, Apparently I'm going to (laughs) raise, I am apparently the Leah Michelle of this podcast and I'm raising my hand all the time. Um, (laughs) But I'll never compare myself to Leah Michelle. Um, I did see this. I actually really love this documentary. I think it's the most successful um, of like the last couple of recent years of that explores a pop star. I think it's the most successful documentary to explore a pop star. I think it's, it's re- second would be Miss Americana for me, which, um, I loved. I, which is a great documentary too. I, I think there's something really great that and Jim, you pointed it out really great, perfectly actually. Like there's something really unique and that crystallizes in this documentary that, doesn't necessarily pop for me in a lot of the other ones. And it's, I think a little bit of the way it's directed, it's the way the story is formed. There's a lot of um, care that goes into this. And I think 
it's up there. It's a great, it's a great movie. And I'm glad Billy popped into your music 2021 list because I think happier than ever is my number one album of 2021. Um, it's really good. And I love her and I loved this film. We have a very interesting discussion on her. If you haven't listened to that episode, I, I encourage you to check it out. It's, it's, I, I'm very pleased with it. Um, Carissa, your third pick. Okay. Um, so this is not a movie that's going to win any awards um, or anything like that, but it was the thing that delighted me the most um, the entire year. And it's a Netflix original directed by Amy Poehler called Moxie. And it's about um, a like 16-year-old girl in high school who is feeling really disenfranchised by some like sexism and double standard stuff and really kind of not sure how, you know, feeling not empowered to do much about it. Um, and her mom is Amy Poehler is, um, uh, like an aging riot girl from, you know, the feminist third wave, um, you know, Kathleen Hanna, that era. Um, and so the daughter becomes inspired by her mom's old riot girl memorabilia and starts a zine that she names Moxie, um, calling out sexism in the school. And it is, I mean, as Kate Reculia would say, um, it's basically catnip made exactly for me. <laughs> um, the it's uh, my number one genre on Spotify wrapped was Riot Girl, <laughs> and the soundtrack for this has Bikini Kill, Julie Ruin, Gossip, Taco Cat, which was my most listened to band of the year. Um, it's incredible. It has um, also on the soundtrack and in a cameo appearance is um, the Linda Lindas, the um, tween uh, feminist punk band that kind of went viral earlier this year for their performance at the LA Public Library the, of um, their original song, Racist Sexist Boy. If I, You all probably saw that, right? I think I did. <sighs> I know I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Anyway, they're in the movie. This film is great. It does a lot of about, um, you know, um, sexism and what it's like growing up female still. Um, but it also addresses some of the issues of third wave, wave feminism and, um, and then how to make things more intersectional, which, uh, there's a lot of really great diverse representation in this film that it's a coming of age story. There's a hetero love story and there's also a queer love story. Um, our hero is fallible. She, she messes up big time. Um, and also she's a kid. There's this one scene that's really poignant for me. Um, and she's fighting with her mom about something. And then just all of a sudden she bursts into tears and says, why doesn't dad want to spend Christmas with me? <laughs> like, okay. right. And it just gets you right. And it's like, oh yeah, this is a kid who's dealing with her own insecurities. Well, she's also trying to like empower her classmates to stand up for themselves and the stupid dress code, you know, uh, and, and the, you know, the white boys who are really controlling things and bullying everybody. Um, it's great. It's so great. Um, and I just, I just, it was my favorite thing. I've watched it at least three times this year. So yeah, I, I loved it. And I think if you like teen movies kind of in the vein of Easy A, this is that for sure. Ooh, okay. Has Have either of the other members of this panel watched Moxie yet or no? I have not, but that last 
thing that you just said just sold me. I mean, you had me at Amy Poehler. Yeah, it's very that. It is very that. And it's and it also talks about, you know, there's um the friendship between our main character and her best friend since kindergarten. And when you're 16 and you're different people, you know, how, how do you deal with that with an evolving friendship or, you know, can it evolve as you evolve? Um, it's really, it, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's so great. I'm so glad that you shared it because like, I know that you had nominated it for culture club, which by the way, if you're not following us on Twitter, every Saturday, all of our panelists suggest their favorite thing that they are ex- experiencing in pop culture this week. And that's, I think it was one of your first nominations for pop for culture club. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. So I remember seeing you nominate, but I'm glad you're bringing it back. It sounds really cool. So thank you. It's really cool. It's really fun. And the Linda Linda's and yeah, the soundtrack is great. You know, rebel girl, they cover rebel, rebel, rebel girl um yeah it's it's really fun jim have you seen it or no no i'm a big fan of the mind of amy poehler so i I think i was sold just when you said that um yeah and she's she's great in this too as the you know divorced mom of a teenage girl that she can kind of relate to on an adult level but then sometimes she has to parent you know it's their dynamic is really interesting and cool i think Awesome. Thank you. That's great, Carissa. And Kevin, take us home. Your final pick. Okay. So before I go into my final pick, there was no order necessarily to one, two, or three of mine. I will say that because I think they swap daily for me. Um, But I figured I would close us out with some Jane Campion. Um, uh, So my final pick is The Power of the Dog. Um, The Power of the Dog is a film that is in... Some theaters still, I think, across the country, probably very few, at, maybe at the point that you all hear this, but um, but is on Netflix. And it is um, it's a film that I've tried to think of a summary for a while without spoiling the general conceit of it, um, because I think it is a journey that I, I really would prefer folks go into blind because... Uh, the way it unfolds is so masterful. So it takes place in rural Montana in the early 1900s. It is a uh, Western um, and centers on um, these two brothers played by Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons. um, And they are ranchers um, from a wealthy family. Um, In fact, it's talked about that Benedict Cumberbatch's character who's playing this like gruff and tumble, like more stereotypical, like quote unquote cowboy went to Yale. Um, uh, But they are from a wealthy family. They concede with the governor. um, But what happens at the beginning is they, they are staying at this home uh, and Jesse Plemons character meets Kirsten Dunst, whose son is played by Cody Mc, Cody Smith McPhee. Um, and, um, Plemons character and Dunst, who are married in real life, um, uh, have, uh, end up getting married to one another. And there's this story that unravels around, uh, the Smith McPhee character who, uh, represents the non-traditional masculinity and uh, and Benedict Cumberbatch's hyper-represented masculine persona and, and just unfolds from there. And that's all I'm going to say from a summary perspective. But, you know, for me, the reason this... I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Jane Campion fan. All of her films are actually on Netflix now. So if you're not necessarily familiar with her filmography, she's not someone who makes movies a lot. Um, 
Uh, but she directed The Piano, which won her an Oscar for screenplay. Uh, she directed The Maligned in the cut. But when I tell you, go back and revisit that noir, it is excellent. That is was known as the Meg Ryan Topless movie, which really bums me out. Um, it also has Mark Ruffalo full frontal. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about the, it, it is fully uh, that's sexism. That was 100 percent. That yep. film was tanked by heavy anti Meg Ryan se- um, sentiment at that moment. It's really gross when you actually look at it. Oh, it, it was terrible. And again, I really encourage folks to revisit that film because it's really it's really good. And Meg Ryan actually gives a really good performance in it. It's it's very it, it has the camp aesthetic, but the camp noir aesthetic that really I think works. And um, and then her other really really great. She also did the film Bright Star, um, which is fantastic. Uh, and then did the television two seasons of Top of the Lake which one season had Nicole Kidman in it. And the other had Holly Hunter. And Holly Hunter. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. That's right. And Holly Hunter is a mainstay of hers. I think the thing I love about Jane Campion is her films largely star female, uh, star women, but this one actually stars a male. It stars Ben. Benedict Cumberbatch is technically the star, but the way she explores masculinity and it's... (sighs) the grit that people try to have on it and what it looks like is just so well done. And I have to give her credit. She always makes men get naked in her films. So that is another reason why I do love her. She's like one of the few people who actually displays full frontal nudity for men, which is disproportionately represented by to toward women. And that bothers me. And I, let's just say it. I want to see more penis in film. Like this is the literal. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. So uh, exactly, women exactly. have been having to go through this for years. It's about time for some recompense. Exactly, and I, and I think the thing about this movie, I am a sucker for a western. I I love, and I guess I should say a more atypical western. You know, uh, and I think modern film have modern films have really tackled that very well. And I think when when and how they explore that well is through kind of pummeling the masculinity that the Western genre perpetuated for many, many, many years, which is, I think, what Campion does here. She pummels it, it, but in a really, like, slow build and slow burn. I've seen this movie twice, um, and the first time I saw it in a theater, and it is stunning. The cinematography by Ari Wagner, who is a relatively newer person on the scene also i believe identifies as as trans um who could be nominated for an oscar and probably would be the first trans um cinematographer nominated uh for an oscar it is just stunning talk about me they filmed this in new zealand and when i tell you i've I've never been to montana so I, i don't know but i felt like i was in montana and it was just so beautifully shot the score by johnny greenwood who largely scores a lot of paul thomas anderson um also score johnny greenwood also scored spencer this year the horror twangs and horns and musical instruments that he used to build up the tension that ultimately ratchets in the end is just flawless. Um, uh, Kirsten Dunst has this beautiful pink top and gray skirt that just sings. Like I love a movie that has this like pop of color in, in a woman. And it's an outfit that I want to wear for Halloween next year. (laughs) Amazing. It's just, it's, it's fantastically acted. I'm not always on board with Cumberbatch and what he does. Um, 
but my God, does this film really weaponize the awkwardness of his acting, if you will? Um, and, and Cody Smith McPhee, when you watch it the second, when I watched it the second time, I was just like, holy shit, this kid is really good like i was going to use a word and i don't want to because i don't want to split but it's really whoa wild and then dunst and plemons are just excellent it's just across the board a movie that i recommend to people and i can't stop thinking about as well same with drive my car i cannot stop thinking about it chris and jim have either one of you seen this no um i have not and here's what i got a question for you so uh we i would say of perhaps avoid Westerns. It's not our genre. Would it be something that I would enjoy if, if I'm not really a huge fan of Westerns? It doesn't feel like a Western to me. Like, but I guess that's, I, so I have seen it. Um, and I mean, it is, that's the setting in this ranchers, but that's not what it's about at all. It's really the relationships between these people um, and, and how strained Benedict Cumberbatch's character makes it, it, he makes everything really uncomfortable for everyone and, and eggshells walking and, and, um, and it's really stressful. Uh, so I, for me, Jane Campion is a little hit or miss. Um, and this one I thought was okay. I, I liked it. Um, the thing about the thing that I don't like watching with her stuff is the cruelty of her men is just, I've like, I don't, I don't really want to see that because <laughs> they're awful. Like I don't, I don't enjoy the piano. Um, so, but I really love bright star. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I was a little hesitant going into this one because you know, like the de- description is Benedict Cumberbatch is an asshole, you know, it's like, Oh great. Can't wait to watch this movie of this guy harassing this woman and you know, her, um, semi effeminate son. Um, but it, it was better than that. So, um, so I liked it, but also if I'm going to recommend a Western from this year, I'm going to tell you to watch, um, the harder they fall. That was great, fun Western. Yeah. They're different watches, like sure. yeah. different watches. Like I also would recommend the harder they fall. Like it, it, it is a great time at the movies in your living room at the saloon at the saloon. <laughs> it is a great time. I think the power of the dog is like, I want this really different tense setting that explores the dramatic to your point the tension of of what and how we present ourselves and what that looks like and in in a different way i wasn't surprised by the um the Cumberbatch characters i was like yeah i know i saw that coming you know like i was not surprised by it at all um and so i was always kind of thinking like i mean it was all right but i don't really need to see it again but the way that you talked about um the the kids i think i would see it again just to uh concentrate on his performance through the whole film so to watch that there are things when i watched the second viewing the thing that i really i really appreciate about her directing is she does things very intentionally there's a visual cue Mm -hmm. like there's a like there's a 
a phallic tree stump or a knot through a rope the way you way you hold a specific item that she is doing with precision and like there's an implementation that she's and and you could argue that's sometimes heavy-handed but i think it takes multiple viewings to catch what she's throwing yeah those paper flowers right the paper flowers exactly yep um yeah there are a lot of yeah, it's just it's just a really rewarding rewatch because you do pick up a lot of the nuance. And listen, right. I love Kiki Dunst, and I have for virtually my entire adult life. So I want to support anything in which Miss Dunst is getting more work. So uh, and she's a brute, and she become. Uh, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but this will lure you into it potentially a little bit more. She becomes a little bit of a boozy broad, Eric. Ooh, I love that. I love a broad. Yeah. All right. Her performance of all of that is just so powerful. I thought she, yeah, she's really great. She's a great actress who deserves more work. And I think now uh, she's fully translated into that adult persona. So I'm really excited to see where mm-hmm. her career goes from here. So that is it, folks. Those are our picks. Did you watch any of them? Do you have any opinions? Is there something else that we missed? This episode is just the beginning of the discussion. So let us know your favorites on social media at greatpopculturedebate.com. A big thank you to my panelists. You guys watched a lot more films this year than I did and I now have a whole bunch more to watch before we get to 2022 and you better buckle up because the great pop culture debate has plenty more for you to come coming right back after the new year go to greatpopculturedebate.com for the polls for season 5 which will be open for your votes this time we're talking about best HBO original series best boy band best 1990s sitcom and best 1980s soundtrack just to name a few if you enjoyed this episode make sure you check out the other best of 2021 episodes devoted to music and television if you're listening to this they're already up now so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on spotify apple podcasts youtube or audible and that you follow us on all of our social media accounts for all the latest news and if you haven't supported us on patreon what are you waiting for there are so many great perks and we'd love to have you as part of our little podcast family thank you for listening this year and let's look forward to a bigger and brighter 2022 have a good one 